0: sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Spacey on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk.
1: If there is anyone out there who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible. America was founded on liberty and independence and not government coercion, domination, and control. We
0: are born free, and we will stay free. Tonight, we renew our resolve that America will
1: never be a socialist country. What magic wand do you have?
2: A really strong job report to start the year, finishing really after a very strong year last year. Two point six million jobs created last year, and, and here the first month of this year, three hundred four thousand net new jobs. That's more than economists had expected.
0: And now, Stacy Washington.
2: <laughs> okay, welcome back. Oh, uh, that was so great. Jesse Jane Duff and Mark Walters, those are some speed talkers. Yes, you guys know how much I love that. All right, uh, welcome back to the program. This hour of the show, we are going to be digging in uh, the New York Times taxes story about the president. I have a little bit of detail on that that I just want to share. If you're just standing around someplace or minding your own business and someone says, yeah, Trump lost a lot of money, like a billion bucks. He lost more than most rich people even have. He's a loser. I'm going to give you exactly what you can say back to that that totally makes perfect sense, especially since uh, if you hadn't seen it. I know I've mentioned it before that we watched The Apprentice back when it was live on TV Um, and it was good. It was good television for for especially considering what passes for reality television now. It was really good. Um, The very first show he launches into an explanation. Hey, I I've lost a lot of money and I've gambled and I've lost on real estate investments, on partnerships, on business deals. And I'm back and I'm bigger than ever. It's a awesome bit of information that he shares there. Um, I'm going to try to find that audio. Maybe we'll have it for tomorrow. But uh, regardless, it's actually funny that they're so focused on his tax thing uh, that, that that's all they could find. It's just it's hilarious. Really, it is. Um, and I might b- break out cackling, like it's just possible that that may happen as well. Just warning you, just in case you want to laugh too, so you don't spit out your coffee when you hear me start cackling like a lunatic, because I just, I, I feel that there's a certain level of levity that's present here that I'm not, I'm not gonna be able to ignore it for long. Um, we're also going to chat with Phil Kirpin, president of American Commitments, about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, their are action that they've taken to reverse Obama's crackdown on small dollar loans. And this is one of those ones where sometimes people will say, oh, you, you're okay with that, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I'm fine with it. (laughs) So we'll get into that. And then the post Mueller landscape, it's here. That's what we're walking around in right now, by the way. Um, Mueller's done and they can, they can subpoena him. They have. He can testify. He will. Nothing's going to come of it next. You know, thanks and next. It's not going to be anything. And then the United States, you know, we've been out there with our little Billy Bad shoes on, um, or in this case, Billy Bad boats, whatever. Uh, We've been out there and we've seized a North Korean ship that was bringing coal to North Korea because we've still got sanctions on North Korea. And, uh, you know, under previous presidents, Many countries were able to flout the sanctions by simply shipping coal in, um, in different routes. And uh, President Trump is not having it. He's not here for it. He's not present to receive the news that his sanctions are being flouted. And so we seized one of their ships. I thought it was pretty newsworthy, actually. Um, I know we won't see anything about it on CNN or MSNBC, but that's okay. That's why we're here. We're here to we're here to bring you the news they won't. So first off. Let's talk about this tax story and what makes it so funny. So I have here on my my desk, I told you guys we were like redoing this room, not really redoing it, but just reorganizing it into something that works. So you see, if you're watching the live stream, you can see a different backdrop again today. Um, so I'm looking for this story here. Um. Oh, and I have an op-ed that's up over the Kansas City Star. You can find it on Twitter as well. The Kansas City Star, and the piece is called "Missouri Missourians Would Lose Under Josh Hawley's Well-Intentioned Drug Pricing Bill. It's got a big old picture of my head up there. It's, that's nice, I guess. Um, so that piece is fresh up at the Kansas City Star, and you can check it out. It's a pretty good op-ed. I'm not I'm not against Josh Hawley in any way, shape, or form, but I think there are some differences in the way he's planning on attacking this problem than what I, I just in my research and it's an opinion piece. So I get to have my opinion no matter what people think. Um, so it's up over there for you to read at the Kansas city star. I think it's Kansas star.com, but you can find the link in my Twitter feed. And I also put it up on Facebook. So let's talk about this Trump tax thing. And these are the details. Um, and it's funny because you know, the New York times people had to have been really thinking to themselves, You know what? As soon as people get in their minds that fixed asset depreciation schedules and assets you know being depreciated legally using a straight line or diminishing balance. Then we will can talk about the whole value equity pickup or minority interest accounting before digging into Section 1031 like kind asset exchanges, partnerships, limited or writ large, carried interest loopholes, pass throughs, net capital losses and gains, seven year income averaging and the difference between long term and short term capital gains. Now, if you just heard me read that off and you're thinking, what language does he speak? That's tax talk now. Some of you probably instantly dozed off to sleep and you're just now waking up going, whoa, what did I miss? It's okay, I feel the same way. I never use these terms unless we're actually sitting in the office with our CPA. And since we no longer have a business of this nature, we don't have conversations like this anymore with her. But the New York Times actually thought they could lure you in, listener, that Americans across the country, Americans who are currently at Walmart or Maybe they're at their Schnucks or their Kroger or their Deerbergs or their you know their Wegmans or Save a Lot, Shop and Save, the Aldi, wherever you buy your groceries. You're coming in or you're coming out, and then you just you're just dying to hear somebody talk taxes to you, or you're dying to put all your stuff down and not sit down and have a cup of hot tea or hot coffee or hot cocoa and put your feet up after the day. No, no, you want to dig into a New York Times piece where they explain all of these terms to you, straight line, diminishing balance, you know, minority interest accounting. You, you're you just, that's what you want to do. And we all know that's not true, right? We all know you are not interested in it, nor am I. I not only do not care about these terms as they pertain to us because they don't, they're not applicable. I don't care how they were used by President Trump. And the reason why, is because back when this all happened, when this was appropriate, when the, the time frame they're looking at, he was a civilian. He was a regular Joe, just like you and me. Rich, sure, but he was a businessman. Like so many other businessmen we know in our communities who employ our friends and neighbors, sometimes our own teenagers, and they make a part of the economy that we're all swimming in. But let's go a little further here because that's not the, just the total, that's not the total story here. The New York Times actually gathered a team of actuaries, legal accountants, tax historians, advisors, and financial consultants to review the tax returns that were leaked to them. Now, the first thing they should have done was when they sat down at the table, because you know, you can't stop people from doing what they're going to do. So they were going to do this, but they're sitting there and it seems to me like they would have said to themselves, first we have to go, first we have to operate from the assumption that he hasn't done anything wrong. Because if he had, he's been audited for each of these years, the IRS already would have leveled fines against him for flouting the tax code. Am I right? Yeah, I'm right. The IRS already audited these same years that were leaked to them. So they already went over it with the fine-tooth comb. And if the IRS couldn't find anything, you know these people ain't gonna find anything. You know they're not gonna find anything. So what makes it so funny is that they think that by going on this little snipe hunt, they could get Americans to stop what they're doing, stop pumping gas, stop checking out library books, stop reading to your kid, whatever you're doing right now, stop petting your dog or running outside with your pets. Stop gardening. Stop, stop what you're doing. Stop working on your car. Whatever you think you're doing right now, stop it. And say to yourself, well, I was certainly going to support President Trump, except I saw his depreciated amortization schedule for... 1989, and I just, after looking at that thing, I mean, the IRS looked at it too. I just, I can't vote for him. Now, y'all know that is not how Americans make their decisions about who they're gonna vote for, but this is all they've got, and that's what makes it so funny. Now, I'm saving my laughter for later. I'm actually doing that on purpose because I haven't done much laughing today, and I'm not gonna do it on the air. I'm gonna wait until later, and I'm gonna share this with my husband and the kids, and then when they start laughing, that's when I'm gonna get my laughing in on this story. But I want to tell you about it, and I can't remember if I threw this up over at the Facebook page for you to kind of click the link and go through, um, but I will, and I, I, I want you to be able to laugh too, because this is the funniest it's going to get with these people and the snipe hunts that they're on, and snipe hunt is absolutely appropriate because snipes aren't real, and a snipe hunt is a, is a hunt for nothing, a hunt for an imaginary thing, which is the guilt of Donald Trump at something. So, and you know what's funny? Um, I I, and this just occurs to me, but you know how um, sometimes we'll have something negative happen to us. Uh, You know, in Donald Trump's case, it's this continual audits. He says he's audited every single year and it's really annoying and he hates it. Well, if you think about it way back when, because, you know, God always knows what's going to happen. God knew Donald Trump was going to be the president back when he would talk a little bit of smack about possibly running for president, but he didn't really mean it. God was like, oh, yeah, you actually going to run. You're actually going to be the president. God knew. But Trump didn't. So think about it. His tax accountants, he might have had people around him. Clearly, he has had people around him who are not completely 100 percent honest. And they might have suggested that he take, you know, take this loophole and expand it and cover, you know, a little bit more of your assets or do this or do that. But by being audited every single year, it actually forced Donald Trump to be squeaky clean. Now. You know, I know about the extramarital stuff. I'm not saying he's a perfect man. This is not an endorsement of him being, you know, above all things and all that other stuff, like y'all said about Obama. No, that's not me. But it did force him in his business dealings to be squeaky clean because he was audited year after year after year. And the auditing process, everybody talks about like it's torture and it's not fun. But one of the things that happens is if they find that their numbers differ from yours, they shoot you over a bill and they'll say, we think you owe us, you know, for example, $3,380. And that is what we, we that that's what our accountants show. So we will give you, uh, you know, some small amount of time, two weeks, 30 days, whatever. And you have to look with your people and you have to prove that that's not what you owe. And if not, you need to accompany, you know, return address, envelope is in with the bill. Just send it back over with a check for the amount that they say you owe, or you'll begin to incur per- penalties. So why am I explaining that? Because there have to have been times when, you know they had to get together and come up with you no know, we think it's this we think it's that so going back and forth so this has been like another full-time job for him that he's had to pay a lot of people over the years tens of thousands of dollars maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars in fees to tax attorneys tax accountants to help him you know usher him through the audit process but in doing so God prepared him in a way uh, it was like a trial by fire that he was able to kind of strengthen himself up for and endure year after year after year and now come to expect it. He actually expects the IRS to audit him. So he governs himself accordingly, which prepared him for this moment. Maybe if he hadn't been audited all those times, there might have been something for the people to find here, the New York Times. Maybe he might not have had you know such strict dealings that would have prevented him from being, you know called a colluder or an obstructor or whatever else that, you know, they've said everything under the sun he's guilty of. So I'm certainly not happy that he's had to endure that. I, I certainly would not want to be the one who's over here justifying what the IRS has done. I don't think it's fair to take one citizen and just ride them off into the sunset like a a mule. But God is working this out for his good. Because one thing we do know is that whatever is in there, the New York Times, uh, The Council on Foreign Relations, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, the Democrats, the DNC. There's not anybody out there who can find something he's guilty of with his taxes, because if it was anything there, the IRS already would afford it to the DOJ for prosecution. So yet again, exonerated. Wow. Unbelievable. All right. When we get back, we're going to have Phil Kirpin, president of American Commitment. Don't touch that dial.
3: It's amazing, but true. When it comes to one of America's biggest household expenditures, healthcare, a lot of people think they've got no choice. People are used to thinking we have to do it this way, but they don't. Yes, you have the freedom to choose an alternative with your healthcare. It's metashare and it costs way less than the alternatives. The typical family saves $500 a month, not a year, a month. And if you're single, this can save you a lot too. And let's face it, a big reason MediShare is 400,000 people strong, it just works. They've shared over $3 in medical bills, so they can help share your needs too. Joining MediShare for so many people is one of those things that makes you say, why didn't I do this before? So yes, the time has come for something better. Look into joining MediShare and see why so many people are opting out of the old way and into the new. Why not look into this? Just call 855 Psalm 23 That's 855-PSALM-23, 855 psalm 23
0: Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. I had a 13-year-old boy tell me, every time I've trusted my dad to come through, he's always let me down. He promised he would come to my football games. I looked for him and he never showed up. He promised to pay for my trip to Disney World. I never saw the money. He promises to hang out with me, but most of the time he cancels and says something has come up. When this kid told me this, my heart was broken. I thought to myself, who can this kid trust? A lot of that in which we place our confidence is not very trustworthy. Let's face it. In fact, apart from God, nothing in this life is ultimately a sure thing. People let you down. I've let folks down. It's called being human having crowded schedules, sometimes making wrong decisions and choices, and yes, even sometimes our own sin. So we're not perfect and we're not ultimately trustworthy, but there is one who is totally trustworthy. Listen to these words in Psalm chapter 40, verse 4. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Listen to that opening line again. How blessed is a man who has made the Lord his trust. Notice the word trust is singular. God has become ultimately that which he has put his total confidence in. This does not mean we can't, in a relative way, trust other people. But ultimately speaking, God is the only one who will never let us down. He's the only one who comes through time and time again. Well, here's what I want you to remember today. God never lets his people down. There's no failure in him. When all else and everybody else has failed you, you can trust God. More information about the ministry of Crawford-Loritz can be found online at livingalegacy.org. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk.
2: Welcome back to the program. Thanks for being here with us today. Uh, find out more at staceyontheright.com, at staceyontheright on Twitter and Instagram. And it's my pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. It's Phil Kirpin. He's the president of American Commitment. Phil, thank you for joining in.
1: Hey, Stacey, great to be with you.
2: Hey, it's great to talk to you. I'm, I'm, I'm over here looking for a good reason to. Uh, I'm, I'm with you. I'm. I've always, uh, whenever I read your pieces, I'm like, yeah, exactly what he said. So. This is no different, but I, it's weird for me to be agreeing with something that the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau is doing.
1: <laughs> well, there's been a big change over there. I don't know if you noticed, but it's not the same place it was when uh, Obama's guy, uh, Richard Cordray, uh, who, who Elizabeth Warren picked, uh, was running it. And uh, the interesting thing about the CSTB um, is that they're a little bit behind all of the other federal agencies in terms of undoing uh, Obama's excessive regulation because... Obama's appointee was still there until almost the end of 2017, almost a full year into the Trump administration, because the way they wrote the Dodd-Frank law, the uh, director gets a five-year term and uh, supposedly only can be fired by the president for cause. And uh, President Trump did not uh, decide to test that for cause clause. It would have been a big lawsuit if he tried to fire him and all that kind of stuff. And I also think he thought sort of the politics of it uh, were I better to keep him there since he knew that Cordray wanted to run for governor of Ohio. He didn't want to give him the benefit, of firing him and letting him go on the campaign trail as the guy who got fired. And uh, you know you can't criticize that because he lost that uh, race and we have a Republican governor of Ohio. So uh, in any event, the president let him stay on the job uh, either because his lawyers said he had to, or because he didn't want to have that legal fight. He let Obama's guy stay on the job until very late in 2017. So we're only now. Uh, seeing you know some of the major CFDB regulations from Obama be uh reversed uh kind of the things we saw at other agencies you know a year or two ago we're we're only now seeing CFDB because they were still writing Obama regulations when Trump was president and so this this a uh, regulation that I wrote this column about that they're taking public comment on now for short term loans like payday loans and uh vehicle title loans that kind of stuff uh, this rule was actually issued when Trump was president. It was issued in 2017, but it, I, you know I call it an Obama regulation because it was Obama's guy uh, who wrote it and promulgated it. He was still on the job then.
2: Mm. So I, I, that is a great explanation because I think a lot of Americans assumed that when President Trump came into, you know, and, and was inaugurated and started assuming the government there, um, that the CFPB would have been reworked at that point. But I also kind of... In my mind, I thought he can rework a lot of agencies, but the CFPB is almost like a like a commie organization that Elizabeth Warren birthed into this universe, and so yeah. You well, know. they
1: set it up in like this incredible way. You know, I mean the the every other federal regulatory commission has five members, three of one party, two of the other, and uh, they get their appropriations from Congress. They have oversight hearings and all that kind of stuff. Uh, CFPB is very different. I mean, they set it up so that all of the power is in one single individual and he's got a he's got a 5-year fixed term and can only be removed for cause and uh they get their budget from the federal reserve so they don't even have to go to congress for an appropriation they don't they really don't have to answer to anyone uh you know there's that one point of accountability basically every, you know every 5 years we have a new uh director but other than that it's an extremely uh unaccountable agency in the way it was set up and that was done deliberately uh, of course, uh, on the theory that you know bureaucrats and regulators are, make better and more enlightened decisions when they're insulated from politics, I think sort of the opposite tends to be the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in any event, we now have a very conservative director, uh, a woman named Kathleen Craninger, who was appointed by President Trump, and she. W- we'll see. It'll. It actually. It'll be very interesting to see if if President Trump is not reelected. It'll be very interesting to see if the next Democratic president does try to fire her. And test uh, the legality of the uh, of that four cause clause or not. But but in any event, for now, uh, we have someone who's uh, sort of going you know going about now the uh, you know the hard work of reversing you know, some of the excessive regulations, reconsidering them, trying to uh, open things up and give people you know more more choices and in, in financial products and so forth.
2: So speaking of the more choice angle, um, in your article, you talk about this. The small dollar loan industry and some Americans are intimately, you know, familiar with it and others are kind of like, oh, small dollar loans. Like, what is that even? Because they only borrow from their bank or, you know, they only use credit cards. What exactly is this?
1: Well, I would say, first of all, I would say that uh, all of your audience should care about this, whether they're someone who's uh, been in a desperate situation and had to turn to a payday loan or a title loan or something like that, or, or somebody who's relatively more comfortable, has access to bank credit, credit cards, and, and never would have to use these products. You should care about it uh, either way, uh, the, first of all. If you are someone who ever has had to turn to one of these products, or, or might in the future be in you know an exigent financial circumstance where you know say if you can't get money today, you can't get your car fixed, you can't get to work tomorrow, there's no money, uh, you you have nowhere else to turn, you don't have family who can help you, you know you need to. Uh, have some place to go as that lender of last resort, and that's what these sort of they call them community financial centers. It might be, you know, a checks cashed place or a you know a, a payday loan place or what have you. But the the, the ability to get uh, sort of last resort funding in emergency circumstances is really important to the economy, and it, it's about twenty billion dollars of credit uh, it, presently. The size of it on an annual basis, it's really important to the economy because uh, people who are in these circumstances; they, they don't have a next place to turn. If you shut them down, if you shut down, you know, if you shut down that payday lender, the person who is in that exigent circumstance has only worse options. Uh, they're either going to try to pass a bad check, or they're going to let an important bill go unpaid, or they're going to uh, maybe turn to a criminal lender, a loan shark, or something like that. That's totally unregulated and very dangerous in many cases. And so, uh, last resort credit—you uh, know—we we might wish that everyone had. Access to you know low-cost bank loans and so forth, but you know there there are people where just the economics of that it's too risky and they they just they don't have that kind of and and this industry has filled that gap and you know we have seen a lot of unfortunate stories of people who get in over their heads with these and I certainly have a lot of sympathy for that, Um, but I think that we need to have a lot more balance than the Obama administration and Richard Cordray did when he developed this rule because. Uh, if, you, if they let the Obama regulation go in, and the Obama regulation was called mandatory underwriting, the idea was that when you go to borrow $100 for a week, uh, you ought to go through a process of documenting, improving your income and your assets and all your outstanding obligations, and it goes in a file and it goes to an underwriter who determines that you'll be able to pay it back. And that's a process that makes sense on a, on, a, uh, on a mortgage. It might make sense on a car purchase loan. But the idea that you're going to do that when somebody needs $100 today uh, that, you know, they can pay back out of their next paycheck. You can, pull, you can pull it right from their next paycheck. The idea that you would go through that whole process is crazy from a timing standpoint and from a compliance cost standpoint. And when you consider that this has been a pretty toughy. Business to be in. It's not like these places are minting money. In fact, a lot of them have already gone out of business, mostly because the economy has been a lot better in recent years, but also because there's been a lot of state regulatory activity. It's been expensive for them. Um, you know, you put a rule like that in, and almost all these places would close down or get out of that business. Uh, and so, and I think they wanted that. I think they said, "Look, this is not, uh, you know, this is sort of an unsavory thing. We don't need it. Let's shut them down." Um, but one of two things happen if you shut down the private sector small dollar lenders. Either Uh, Nothing replaces them, and people who who need them or in exigent financial emergencies. They have only worse options, or you get what the left really wants, and this is where I think your listeners who who are not in that situation themselves really should be concerned about this. Um, What the left really wants after they shut down the private sector small-dollar lenders is they want to replace it with government. And in particular, uh, Elizabeth Warren has suggested that we shut down the private sector small-dollar lending industry, and then we have the post office. Become a bank where people can get small dollar loans from the government through the through the United States Postal the Service. The post office? And, yeah, postal <laughs> I, bank. I, my
2: dollars. eyes are about to fly out of my head. What do you mean, the post office? Yeah, the same place that can't manage to deliver the mail uh, <laughs> half the time. And I don't know. I, I don't
1: know. I should shouldn't say that. I've had some very good mail carriers at times. Uh, presently, we don't like our current one. Does not do a great <laughs> job. Some are very good. I'm not trying to paint with a broad brush, but it's hardly the model of a well-functioning organization that we ought to trust uh, with managing uh, financial services. And in particular, I'm pretty sure that as much as we get told over and over that the post office is financially independent, um, if they started doing banking services, especially loans to relatively high-risk individuals, uh, I think they would rack up very large losses and taxpayers mm-hmm. would be forced to bail them out at some point. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Our stamps that, I, would be $100 liberal a liberal vision.
2: Yeah. It, you know what, Phil? Our stamps would be a hundred dollars each, and yeah. we would have to get underwriting in order to buy a stamp. <laughs> that, that's what that's what this would amount to. I mean, we when you said that you didn't currently like your mail carrier, but you have in the past had, we're in the same situation. I we I don't actually know our current mail carrier because of where our post or where the the mailbox is located. I don't see them anymore where I used to actually interact with our our postal service person because our mailbox was so much closer to our house. But that being said, there's some people who work at our post office, the one where my zip code mails stuff out of and receives mail. It's near enough to me that I can go there and mail a package like Mother's Day gift to my mom. I was just there. And I think out of all the people who work there, all of them, like when they see me, they say, oh, hello. You know, they don't call me by name, but they kind of recognize me and they help me out. But that's not always the case. Like some post offices I go to, especially when, you know, every, I don't know, eight years or so, you have to go get your passport renewed. I've never been to a post office to get my passport renewed where I thought, wow, what a wonderful experience. The passport renewal people at the post office seem to have some kind of, they're angry. I don't know if they're angry because they think you're leaving the country and they can't, whatever it is. But they're also kind of incompetent. And this is at doing... I know it's not an easy thing, the passport thing, because it's it's a lot of regulations. It's a very important document. But I'm just saying they don't have the kind of expertise that is required to do banking transactions. And I thought there was licensure involved in doing lending. Like, I thought if you were a lender, you had to be licensed. You can't just – like, I can't just open up a lender here at home because I can make a website, right? I mean – Oh, yeah, That's correct.
1: There, there's every state has pretty extensive regulation of these uh, of these companies, and you know there's existing federal regulation as well. And the um, and the proposal here from the Trump CFTB, by the way, it actually it does keep, keep some elements of the regulations. It's not a total repeal, but it repeals the uh, the the most uh, aggressive aspect of of what Cordray did, which is the mandatory underwriting rule, which is really critical because that rule would. Uh, shut down eighty or ninety percent of small dollar lenders.
2: Hmm. So it's upsetting to me. Uh, not and and I'm not one of those people who feels like the government can't do anything. You know, I'm I'm a limited government person, but I think there are some things that the government, you know, is rightly in charge of. But banking and lending is not one of them. And the thing that I point to, like the thing that is glaring in my mind right now, where we're talking besides the ineptitude of the post office, is didn't obama give over all of the student loans to the government and now every i mean every day i see a news story about how american taxpayers are paying this many billions of dollars in the student loan industry student loans have grown out of proportion to you know the per- per- personal house home how- personal household income or expenditures blah blah blah. blah. in other words it's and every
1: democratic candidate for president has some plan to uh just you know write off the student loan so the government the government took over all the student lending, and now they just basically want taxpayers to eat the cost. So I think you could see something similar happen with this postal banking proposal where they could, they could make a whole bunch of loans uh, and then just say, hey, taxpayers will pay for them instead of the people who borrowed the money.
2: Mm-mm. Nope. And I'm, so I'm not, I'm not here for that. We have already done our fair share of bailing out and fixing and, and kind of coming in. So this is just another reason why, Phil... If you're thinking, even toying with the idea of voting for one of these Democrats or whichever one is their actual nominee, none of them have any good ideas on fixing problems that we're having right now.
1: Well, I mean, I think all of their supposed fixes are just massive government programs uh, that I have very little confidence would would work uh, for their intended purposes. But whether they work for their intended purposes or not, I'm absolutely certain would be extraordinarily expensive. And so I think the Democrat agenda is uh, very consistent in one thing. Uh, it, you know, They they want a much, much bigger government with a higher level of spending and a higher level of taxes, and I don't think that the American people want that, but uh, this could be a very interesting presidential election because there are a lot of personal attributes of our current president, uh, to sort of put it mildly, that a lot of people dislike, and so his numbers <laughs> are sort of capped in a way that uh, would not otherwise be the case in a strong economy like that.
2: Yeah. In other words, if he were a sweater vest wearer like Mitt Romney, people would love him, but then he wouldn't have been as successful. The economy would not be booming. We would not be making inroads in some areas where we are. So it's like a trade off. So do you take, you know, the uh, what have they been calling him? Not a vagabond. Um, He's a Visigoth. Is that what they've been calling him? There's, there's some term. Maybe. They've been, tra- like been the calling him that. In
1: fact Rome, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. So they've been calling him like a Visigoth, right? Which, in, in, I would not want to be sitting around at dinner or at lunch or even in the same room with a Visigoth. But I would want a Visigoth to be at my disposal to go, you know, I point and they go take whatever it is. Because a Visigoth who's going to win, it's it's a it's a fierce fighter. So it's kind of like a catch 22 where you want him to go out and win and do stuff. You want the strong economy, but you kind of don't want, you know, his demeanor. And it's set. You know, Phil, I I just don't see President Trump changing significantly like he's he, it's, we're not going to wake up uh, you know next week on if monday he changes,
1: and if he changes he'll be getting more trumpy not less.
2: yeah yeah exactly he's not going to be tweeting um you know lengthy sonnets or shakespearean you know he's not going to do that on monday he's not going to we can't expect that so we, you kind of have to take the good with the bad and be glad for what what we're able to get which is i think he, i think he's doing a pretty good job and now that The CFPB is actually doing some stuff that will help Americans, you know, that's good too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, I think that, um, you know, when you look at what's been happening, every single agency in terms of deregulation, uh, you know, it's hard to criticize almost any of it. I mean, from a free market, you know, uh, economic policy perspective, this has been an exceptionally good administration. Now they haven't got a whole lot done legislatively. Uh, they've tried. Congress hasn't really helped much. Um but you look sort of everything they've dialed back at EPA, everything they've done at at uh, HHS, uh, they've done some major things at Treasury and IRS uh, and, and uh you know at C F T B there's a lot of heavy lifting, but they they're they're starting to do it. So mm-hmm. I think um you know you look at sort of the They've met their the executive order, the two in one out rule, two old regulations removed yeah. from the book for every one new one that's put in, and uh it's, you know, it's, it's good a pretty stuff. good story it on we, regulation. That's it is, safety. You know, I mean, the problem with doing things executively is the next Democrat can flip them all back. So at some point you need to actually yeah. get laws passed. Okay,
2: we're out of time, but thank you for coming on, and we'll be right back with more. This is Uncommon Moments. Here's former Super Bowl winning NFL coach Tony Dungy and his wife Lauren sharing from their book Uncommon Marriage. Tony is analytical like his dad. He'll say, we can do this, and here's how we should go about it. As a result, his plans usually turn out well. We are opposites in a number of ways, but we've learned to respect and navigate our differences.
3: One thing you can do to discover the unique differences between you and your spouse is to talk with their family. As Lauren interacted with my family over the years, she learned more about me. I did the same with her family. This helped me see how Lauren was wired. I realized how special and wonderful she was.
2: And I was able to learn things about Tony that really helped in our uncommon marriage. Tony and Lauren Dungy, authors of Uncommon Marriage, learning about lasting love and overcoming life's obstacles together. Discover more at CoachDungy.com.
3: This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute.
1: Nothing demonstrates that elections have consequences better than these two opposite outcomes affecting the lives of unborn babies and their mothers. North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper vetoed a bill that would have protected babies born alive during a late-term abortion attempt. However, South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster pledged to sign a bill ending abortions when a baby's heartbeat can be detected. Two elections with very different outcomes one advocating an extreme pro-abortion position and the other protecting most of the state's unborn babies. You and I both have a privilege and obligation to vote pro-life in every election. Vote like life depends upon it, because it does.
3: For more information, visit our website at lifeissues.org and stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. Military Matters. It was just eight years ago that I was
1: paralyzed, you know, and they told me I was completely paralyzed, never walked again. U.S. Army veteran Dan Rose stands with pride with the help of a new exoskeleton. He never thought he'd stand, let alone walk, on his own two feet again. As a combat engineer deployed to southern Afghanistan, he and his crew ran over an IED, which severed his spine. The first time I stood up, I forgot what it was like to... You know be five foot seven you know which isn't that tall but I felt like you know the tallest man in the world because I got so used to the perspective of sitting in a wheelchair. Nonprofit Soldier Strong donated the exoskeleton to the Phoenix VA Hospital. Rose believes the technology will one day give paralyzed patients the
2: option of going bionic.
3: Being able to stand up like this is just the greatest feeling in
0: the world.
2: Nicole Garcia Fox 10 News.
0: You can download episodes of Stacey of the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk.
2: Hey, welcome back. That was a great interview. Uh, I am always super enthused to hear good things, but I think there's something... I wish that there was a way that, that legislatively... Um, Congress could make a change to the CFPB to make it more accountable, not just to the president and the executive branch, but to Americans. And uh, its current setup means that we can enjoy it doing good things under President Trump, but then a a future Democratic president can order the CFPB or can, through his, his agenda, make the CFPB an arm of a very despotic form of government that is not anything akin to what the founders wanted us to do. So, you know, the good and the bad is the two sides of the single coin when an agency is set up the way that one was. And as a side note, if you think the setup of the CFPB was accidental, you've never met Liz Warren. And I don't mean met, met. I mean, Meet her ideas. Understand where she comes from. She believes the government should be able to do whatever it wants to do and tell you anything it wants to do and that you shouldn't have a recourse against it because government knows best because she's the government. See how that works? Pretty awful. So I'm going to quickly cover this story, uh, the U.S. seizing this North Korean ship for violating sanctions. And this is the last segment of today's show. (laughs) So if you want to call in, you're welcome. 866-963-2037. 866-963-2037. Uh, U.S. seizes North Korean ship for violating sanctions. So what it is, is we've got uh, these U.S. authorities who have seized a North Korean ship that was transporting coal in violation of international sanctions against North Korea. The name of the North Korean ship is Wise Honest. Wise Honest. And it's the first seized by U.S. authorities over sanctions violations. It is now approaching U.S. territorial waters accompanied by the U.S. Marshals and Coast Guard. The sanctions busting ship is now out of service, according to U.S. Attorney General or actually Assistant Attorney General John Demers. He, he said this when he announced the seizure. Now, U.S. banks uh, are unaware of the wise, honest home port were financing its servicing and equipment, according to the DOJ. A civil complaint seeking the ship's forfeiture was filed in the Southern District of New York on Thursday after the ship was taken into U.S. custody. Now, the complaint actually indicates that a warrant was issued for the seizure in July of 2018 after Indonesian authorities seized the ship and convicted its North Korean captain of offenses uh, related to the improper documentation for the ship. So the long and the short of it is, in order for sanctions to work, the actual functioning mechanisms by which the sanctions would be Implemented; those things have to be adhered to, so they have to follow the law. So they have to. It's it's like with anything. If you tell your kids you can't, you know, you can't use your devices after nine thirty p.m., and then you're in your room doing, you know, watching TV or sleeping or whatever, and your kids realize there's no oversight and they start using their devices after nine thirty. Well, that's what's going to happen. The (laughs) kids are going to flout the the rule, Um, not because they're horrible, because they're humans, and so. If we set up sanctions, we have to be prepared to enforce those sanctions by cooperating with other nations who are participating in the sanctioning process with us and by utilizing our justice system and our ability to, in this case, seize a ship to make sure that they're not able to use the coal that they're looking for. And it's not harsh. It's absolutely the right thing for us to do. And when we do it, we are making it possible for them to feel the effect of the sanctions and change their behavior. Otherwise, what is the point of the sanctions? No point. No point whatsoever. So I talked about um, the bleak post-Mueller landscape. And I have a couple things to get to before we finish the show out here. And I want to make sure and cover these because um, I have so much for tomorrow that I don't want to have to hold a whole bunch of it over. Okay, so well for yeah, let's 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 go into progressives facing this bleak post-Mueller landscape. Now, why are we calling it bleak? Well, because for 22 months the progressives have been holding on to Donald Trump's guilty of of collusion and of obstruction. And They insisted that he was a Russian asset. So if those things were true, they would be in high cotton right now. They would just be dancing a jig and they'd be what I call Snoopy dancing. You know, they would be enjoying themselves, living life to the fullest, living their best lives, whatever your analogy is, YOLO, whatever. They would be doing that. But they're not because they were wrong. (laughs) So Democrats are now turning their guns on the person they view as the messenger because Barr wrote a summary of what was happening. Now it's kind of unreal to watch them besmirch Barr's character and his conduct because up to now they hadn't really cared about him much one way or the other. And they're literally defaming the man out of anger over the fact that Mueller didn't give them what they wanted. And they will defame Mueller. They will make these long, lengthy, horrible statements against him when he comes in. The Democrats are already writing them. They're already on their little laptops and tablets typing up the horrible, defamatory statements. They will be insulting to Donald Trump, William Barr, and him, Mueller. He's no longer their savior. He doesn't ride a white horse anymore. He's not even a man anymore. He's a horrible, horrible being that they're they're going to have to vanquish and they're going to have to make— meat of him in front of the American people in the the hearing when he comes to testify. And I want to call out a few things that have not happened. Had they happened, the Democrats would probably have some justification in being so angry with Barr. And then, you know, there's a twist at the end, which is always delicious. So has Barr's Department of Justice actually monitored the communications of reporters or ordered the surveillance of a television journalist? No. Has Barr used a government jet to take his family to the Belmont horse stakes race as a previous AG did? Has Barr met secretly on an airport tarmac with the spouse of a person his Justice Department is investigating? No. Who did those things? Attorney General Eric Holder. Also, AG Eric Holder said he was President Obama's wingman And he called America a nation of cowards. Do y'all remember that? And I remember being especially enraged when A.G. Holder said we were all cowards because he's never served in the military. And many, many millions of us cowards out here in the hinterlands have. Also, Holder, he's not he's not a gun owner himself. It takes a certain level of, you know, steel in your spine to say, I'm going to take on the responsibility of owning firearms and being trained and knowing how to use them and and also Eric Holder's wife owns an abortion clinic so he's got the courage to support his wife in snuffing out the lives of the unborn but he has no just he doesn't have any room for the rest of us out here we're just too lowly and dirty and you know bible and we're just too awful for him to contemplate a nation of cowards he says and he was talking about race but he was wrong We are not a nation of cowards. We're a nation of victors because when the going got tough, we went to war with each other over the issue of owning people and then good prevailed. We had Jim Crow. We had a lot of problems afterwards, as most people do when they have to completely change their ideology and their their viewpoint on something that they've been living one way then now they have to live it another way. And it was horrible and we made it through. And now here we are in the land of plenty, having had our first black president and having survived it because he was a Marxist and a terrible, terrible executive. And here we are. And we had to put up with Eric Holder saying those things about us. And now the same people who didn't they didn't bat an eyelash. They didn't part their lips in disgust or despair or to defend America writ large. America, a nation of cowards, not in your worst nightmare, Eric Holder, because if that were true, you'd be somewhere working for an Arab enslaved. That's 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 if this was a nation of cowards, you wouldn't even be here. Because, you know, the non gun owners, they go first, the ones who aren't willing to defend themselves, they go first, the ones who, uh, you know, are academics and really only know they're only book smart, they go first. You know that, right? Just just look at the history of different countries. And when they go down the drain, the ones who survive are the ones who are street smart and gun wise and understand that they have to defend themselves. And the others, well, you know what happens to them. You've read the history books and Eric Holder is one of them. He's totally down with, you know, coddling himself up to power and sneaking around and, you know, funding his wife's abortion clinic. But he's not very strong when it comes to actually standing up to the evil that exists in this world. He wouldn't be able to do it. He'd need some of us rubes out in the hinterlands to get up and stand in front of his weak-kneed self. That's what the truth is about him. But he called us a nation of cowards. Cowards who would unfortunately have your back since you're an American too, Eric Holder. Take that with you. So you've got all these things that Eric Holder did when he was Attorney General that the Democrats are perfectly fine with and now you have A.G. Barr who hadn't been there 10 minutes and he's already been held in contempt by, you know, the panel and they want the whole House to hold him in contempt. And remember the airport tarmac meeting the government jet to take a private vacation you know the surveillance of a television journalist, the monitoring of the communications of reporters. Those are all potential felonies and the Democrats were silent. But now A.G. Barr is simply saying, the law prevents me from producing the unredacted Mueller report to the entirety of Congress or the American people. Law passed by Congress and signed in by a president long ago prevents me from doing that. So what they're saying is, break the law or we'll hold you in contempt. And one other point, just in case you're like thinking, okay, I got to tick off a couple points. You realize that it's about 1%, 1 1.5%, let's just say 2% to be generous. There's like 2% of the entire Mueller report that is currently redacted. And that 2% has to do with uh, grand jury evidence, communications, and individuals who are protected under the current law. The rest of the report, so basically 98% of the report, is available in a SCIF, a secure, it's basically a place where you can't take a cell phone in, you, but if you have a, the right security clearance, you can go into this SCIF and you can read the Mueller report there. It is available on Capitol Hill for any sitting congressperson or senator can go in and read it. So they're actually holding him in contempt for something that already exists, and here's another little bit of interesting information: the White House per the White House, who is keeping track because you know you have to sign into the skiff, so it's not like you can say, "I read the mueller the the unredact or the mostly unredacted Mueller report last night you can't you can't." Read it on your home laptop or your highly secured laptop that's government issue. You can't use your highly secured government issue phone to access it. You actually have to go to the skiff and read it. Which means when you get to the skiff and you turn in all of your purse, your you know if you were me, just if it's me and I and I had the clearance and I was going to the skiff, I'd have to turn in my purse, my cell phone, my laptop, and my laptop bag. In my laptop bag, I'd probably have a little bottle or little to go, you know, little hard Tiva thing of. Coffee or a little water bottle, a little chubby in there, some gum, some curiously strong altoids, a whole bunch of packages of those little individual wrapped tissues, numerous pens, business cards. So they're gonna go through all that. They're gonna look it all over. I'm gonna have the, the weird earbuds that I have to use for this iPhone seven because iPhone's starting to really be a lot of garbage. They just they they don't seem to know what people want. Whole nother show. So I'd have to turn all that in and they would scan all of it and make sure that it was, you know, none of it bad stuff. And then they would take it and I I basically would sign my name and say why I'm coming in. I'm I'm Stacy Washington and uh, here's my badge so you can see that I have the clearance. Sign in and then they're going to wand you and make you walk through basically like the same thing they have at the airport. They're going to send your bags through a scanner to make sure there's nothing they can't see in the bags besides them already having looked in it. And they're going to keep all your stuff because a skiff means you can't carry anything in because they don't want you going in with your cell phone and taking pictures of the unredacted Miller report and that getting out. So in order to just prevent you from doing that, you can't carry anything in. So they're keeping track of how many people go over to read it. And none of the Democrats have been there. They say they want the unredacted Miller report. The 98% unredacted Miller report is sitting in a skiff on Capitol Hill. All they have to do is go over there and get it. It's at the DOJ. They won't go. They have not gone. So if that's what they want, why are they holding him in contempt when it's there and they can go see it? Maybe because they don't really want to see it? Oh, there's the music. Guess what, guys? Rockin' and rolling Until tomorrow, God bless you from the heartland citizens. Have a fantastic evening. Stacy Washington, staceyontheright.com. Thanks for making your home at American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk.